Father, we do uh, desire that all these needs and issues that we've raised, that uh, you would uh, deal with them in your sovereign hand, timing. Pray particularly a couple that we mentioned and just pray that you would bring salvation. I think that's one of the key things that's needed there. I just pray that you would work in all the other circumstances as well. We commit our time to you and our class. We desire to understand what you have communicated, that we may better be able to share the gospel with a lost and unbelieving world. We commit our time in Jesus' name. This morning, this in the book of Romans, we are going to see an example, I believe, that Paul sets not only in setting forth clear teaching, clear doctrine, but the methodology that he uses in establishing doctrine. In other words, any thinking, any ideas that we may come up with, if they're not found in Scripture, then uh, we need to reevaluate and sometimes, most of the time, probably abandon them. So Paul has set forth doctrine, and he would naturally be asked, well, is this a new thing that you've come up with, Paul? Is this something that you claim to have visions about, or are you delirious? Is this just out of your own mind and thinking, or where do you get these ideas? Well, what Paul does is he takes the reader to Scripture, and chapter 4 that we've been looking at is an example of that, where he does that in two cases, but he does that throughout the book of Romans, so that's what we need to do. The, the Word of God is our authority, and especially in the world in which we live in today, there are people that talk about the Word, even sometimes in the pulpit. And a lot of things that they say are not bad necessarily, sometimes good. But what we need to do is go to the Scriptures and see what the Scriptures teach. And I believe that we need to expound and teach the Scriptures. So in the book of Romans, we're going to look today at an example that Paul uses, or at least a couple of examples of this whole idea of the provision of God's righteousness. He's convinced us, hopefully every one of us, that all mankind is condemned, chapter 1, 18 through 320. And he's dealing with a theological concept called justification. So this is for the believer, and he'll do that through the end of chapter 5. So we're kind of in the heart of it, in the middle of it. He gave us the provision with lots of detail in one sentence, chapter 3, 21 through 26, the provision that God has made for those that are, in fact, condemned. We also spent a Sunday on the priority of justification, kind of re-emphasizing some of the main points that he developed in 21 through 26. The priority is justification is by faith apart from works. Faith and faith alone, that's how we enter in. And I think it's reiterated because our natural tendency is to try to do something in order to please God. And Isaiah tells us anything that we do, the very best efforts are like filthy rags. And we're in the section where now Paul is saying, well, this isn't just my idea. There's actually a pattern in the Old Testament, so he's going to give us the Old Testament pattern for justification, and particularly to a Jewish audience, 
who would be interested, well, what about Old Testament people? Are they justified? Uh, I thought that you would say, I thought that justification came by observing the law and obedience to the law and right action and good works and all that goes with that. And Paul is going all the way to the very first Jew, you might say, the one that God called to create the nation. And he gives us the pattern. So from the start of the nation of Israel, justification is by faith through grace. So that's what we've been looking at. Now, beginning in chapter 5, after he's established this pattern from the Old Testament, now he's going to deal with why is it profitable to the believer? And the main emphasis there is the peace that we have with God. So we'll look at that when we get to chapter 5. But this pattern, we focused on verse 3. So let me take a quick look at that, and then we'll jump ahead to verse 6. For what does the Scripture say? And that's what we always want to go back to. Any idea that we may have, if it's not validated, if it's not taught, if it's not explicit, In Scripture, then we need to rethink it and most of the time abandon it. So what does the Scripture say? Now, one of the things that I'd like to add that I was intending to last week and just ran out of time, I wanted to show you the context. In fact, I might have done better to start off with this, but to kind of summarize it, uh, let's look at the chronology of Abraham. Because there may be some confusion concerning where this scripture comes from. Now, where is this scripture located? I think most of you might know. Genesis, more specifically. Chapter 15 and very specific, verse 6. And chapter 15 has to do with what? That's the main chapter dealing with a very, very important concept. The Abrahamic covenant, and I've said many times, when God gives Abraham the Abrahamic covenant, he is setting the parameters for all the rest of world history. So this is a very significant milestone, very significant passage in the Old Testament. So verse 6 is in the context of the Abrahamic covenant. So the question would be raised, is that the moment that Abraham was justified, because that's where the passage comes out of. Well, let's take a little bit of a look at that. In fact, you might turn to the book of Genesis, because I want to develop this a little bit. I don't want to take too much time on it, but I do want to note a couple of things in the passage for clarity. So Genesis chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, and here's the beginning of this Abrahamic covenant, Do not fear Abraham. He has just gone through some very traumatic experiences. He goes on, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Then verse 2, And Abraham said, knowing that God is speaking concerning that promise that God made in chapter 12. And in the promise, Abraham remembers, O Lord God, what wilt thou give me since I am childless? In other words, everything depends on that firstborn child. The Abrahamic covenant, which is not a covenant yet until chapter 15, depends on this child. He's childless. But, as was the custom, there's an heir 
In other words, within the household, not a physical descendant, but a servant by the name of Eliezer of Damascus, he is part of the household of Abraham. Perhaps through him this promise will be fulfilled. And Abraham said, Since thou hast given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. In other words, he is the legal heir at this point, with no children, no physical children. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body. Even though you're almost 100 years old, even though Sarah is, what? how old was she? 90, okay, 10 years different. Never bore a child, barren, no hope, past childbearing. A child's going to come from your own body. He shall be your heir. So to assure Abraham, verse 5, and he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. In other words, they will be innumerable. From somebody to parents, they're incapable of bearing children. And then the writer, Moses, it's not clear in the English text, but there's actually a Hebrew construction that kind of breaks the sequence here. And I take verse 6 as somewhat parenthetical to kind of tell the reader God is dealing with a man that is regenerate. And it says in verse 6, Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now, from the English text, it almost seems like it follows. But in the Hebrew text, there's a very common construction in narrative literature. And you see it throughout the book of Genesis. And when I'm in Genesis 1, I emphasize that to stress the fact that Genesis 1 is historical narrative. In Hebrew, there is what is called a vav consecutive. You have an and, a vav in Hebrew, connected with the main verb, and the main verb is in the imperfect. In other words, it's a past time idea, but there's more elements than just time. And when you have that, it's a sequence. In other words, one sequence after another, and this happened. Like in Genesis 1, and God said, and God made. And God does this. And God does this. You have a series throughout. Vav consecutive. Vav consecutive throughout Genesis 1. And if you would have in the middle a break from that, like you have here in Genesis 15, well, in Genesis 15, after these things, you have a beginning of a new narrative, another mini-narrative, you might say, within a broader narrative. And then in verse 2, and the and would be attached to said in the Hebrew text. And said Abraham, literally, but in English it flows better to put the subject first. And Abraham said, Bob consecutive, said in the imperfect. And then verse 3, and it says, again, it's uh, identical construction. And Abraham said, you have a Bob consecutive again. In other words, this is the next in the sequence. Then in verse 5, and he took him, in other words, and took he would be the literal Bob consecutive. And then now you have a break in the narrative. You have the and there, but it's in the it's attached to a verb that's in the perfect tense, which says this is something detached, you might even say, or separate from the sequence. 
And I think what the writer is showing us is that this pertains to a person that has been justified. So in the so in the chronology in Abraham, if you go back to chapter eleven, somebody read verse twenty six. Okay. If you follow the chronology of the book of Genesis by the age when people are born, you can trace a very complete and tight chronology in the book of Genesis. So you have a time frame here. You need just a date to correlate with outside of Genesis, and then you have a date for virtually every event that you have a date for in the book of Genesis. And there's many. So we have here the birth of Abraham, and according to Honer's chronology, that would give you a date of about 2135. And then from there, everything else you can trace. Okay? Now the background, somebody else look up Joshua 24.2. Who wants to do that real quick? You got that one, Dwayne? We have the background of Joshua, and then we'll have somebody look at the call of Abraham, call at Ur, and I, I think I, I'm giving you the sequence of events here. Now, this is not unusual in the book of Genesis. For example, chapter 11, in terms of time, in the book of Genesis, I believe comes before chapter 10, historically. In chapter 10, you have the table of nations, and then what Moses does in chapter 11 explains where did these nations come from. It's as a result of the Tower of Babel in chapter 11. So the sequence is not chronological. This is not unusual in Hebrew narrative. I think you have something similar in the life of Abraham. You have his birth recorded in chapter 11, not in the book of Genesis, but just to give you kind of his background, because this is very important. He's an unbeliever. He's ungodly. He's like the rest of the world. Justification came to him by grace. We're going to see that. And I think that's the stress of the passage. Got 24-2 there? Joshua said to all... Now, Joshua's reviewing the history of Israel, and part of that... Sorry, Dwayne, go ahead. ...said to all the people, Joshua, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and served other gods. And they served other gods. They're idolatrous. They're like the rest of the culture. <coughs> No different from any other person from uh, that Mesopotamian area, Ur of the Chaldees. Now, I think, in chapter 12, 1 through 3, Moses, I believe, goes back to the time when he calls Abraham, and the promise is made, I take it, in Ur of the Chaldees. Bob, did you have a comment or a question? No, I was going to read it. Okay, read it. Read it. Genesis 12. 1 through 3, yeah. This is the promise that will become a covenant. You're familiar with it. Go ahead. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, and from your relatives, and from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great. Okay. The the assumption from that passage He's still in Ur, right? He hasn't left yet. In other words, this is what God is promising, commanding him to leave. And the rest of chapter 12 is going to tell us where he left Haran and then ends up in Shechem. Keep reading. 
and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Okay, this is a far-reaching promise that in chapter 15 will become a covenant that God enters into. In fact, the fulfillment of that promise will not be completed until the millennial kingdom. There's aspects of it that are unfulfilled even today. So I take 12, 1 through 3, his call at Ur that includes a far-ranging promise. And in chapter 11, verse 31, he leaves Ur to go to Haran, who wants to read 31. You got that one? Go ahead. Took Aram his son and Lot of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter in law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan, and they went as far as Haran and settled there. Okay, so it kind of gives us just the outline of events, and I would put it chronologically chapter 12 before 31 in terms of time. Now it's given to us in chapter 12 because it's going to elaborate this and move to the land of Shechem where we begin to see the beginnings of the fulfillment. And then in chapter 12, 4 through 6, they arrive at Shechem, and it tells us that Abraham is 75 years old there. So 75 years have elapsed from uh, 1126. And just for those of you that went to Israel... We went on top of Mount Gerizim, looked down upon Shechem that was down there. Uh, that's modern-day Shechem. If you take a closer look at it from there, you can actually see the archaeological site. We didn't go down there. It was too dangerous. We were already in a bulletproof bus, bulletproof glass and armored bus. We were on the West Bank, but we were in a safe area, but... Going down into that area was not safe, so we did not go down, but that's the site there. That would be the very spot where Abraham first comes to the land of Canaan that's recorded in Genesis 12. It's a close-up of the archaeological site. So that's the chronology. In chapter 13, the promise is reiterated. It's not a covenant yet. When we get to the 15th chapter, Abraham is about 85. We don't have a date for it, but we have a date following. So he's about 85. In chapter 15, 1 through 6 is the passage that we just looked at. So I take it that the covenant is later, but verse 6 in chapter 15 is kind of parenthetical, looking back at the time when Abraham trusted God while he was probably in Ur of the Chaldees, and then in obedience he leaves, and then we have the following sequence. Does that make sense? So I think it's a reference to the initial justification of Abraham, and that's what Paul is emphasizing in uh, Romans 4.3. So Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Not at the giving of the covenant, but parenthetically referring to the time when he trusted all the way back in Ur of the Chaldees. Now, we don't have a specific verse that says that, but it makes sense. And I think the Hebrew 
in uh, the Genesis account makes provision for that. And we focused on that credited to him, the word credit, credited, that's logizomai. We did a somewhat thorough word study on it. And theologically, it means to credit something spiritually when it's used theologically. Most of the usages pertain to crediting in a normal everyday sense, an accounting term or in a mathematical sense or in a logical sense. But theologically, that's what we have in chapter 4. So we went into some detail there. And we saw the concept theologically. Do you have a commentary or question? So just to clarify, so you're saying that Abram basically when he left Ur, Ur, that's when he was justified. He trusted Well, sometime before that, I think when he leaves, it's in obedience. In other words, I'm a believer. I believe in the one true God. I'm abandoning idolatry. I'm going to obey this promise that God has made. So I think he's justified after God appears to him. Does that make sense? Okay. We saw theologically the concept, and I think Romans 5.13 that we looked at, sin is imputed, the sin of Adam. In other words, from God's perspective, we are considered to have the same sin as Adam. In other words, he regards us as sinners because we are descendant of Adam. And we follow through because we continue with sin. In other words, we're guilty for our own sin as well. The passage where the word logizomite does not occur, but I think the concept is there when it refers to Christ taking on our sin. It doesn't make Christ a sinner. He's still the sinless Son of God, but it is imputed to him. In other words, it is put to his account, if you will, and he is made sin on our behalf. By imputation, in other words, God considers him to be the sin bearer in order that he pay the penalty for sin. Doesn't make him a sinner. Also, when righteousness is imputed to us, righteousness is imputed, we saw that in chapter 3, 21 through 26, and it's illustrated in this passage in chapter 4, this concept of imputation. We are not made righteous, but we are what? What was the other word that we used? Declared righteous. We still have a sin nature. We still have the inclination. When we are glorified in the future, we'll see that in Romans 8, then we will be made righteous or imparted with righteousness. So that's the concept of imputation to credit to one's account, adding to our list of key terms. And thinking in terms of this ledger sheet uh, from the accounting world, in the debit column, we have sin. Justification involves the forgiveness of sin. It also includes the imputation, that's what we focused on last week, of righteousness, so that in the balance column, the way God looks at it, looks at us is we are justified, justification. So we start out with a debit that we cannot pay, that uh, is eternal, consequences is death. God removes that. That's part of justification. That's forgiveness of sin. And he imputes or puts within our account righteousness, two things. And that's the meaning of justification. And we said theologically, this is a work of God's justice, 
we either have condemnation that cannot be removed by man, or we are blessed with this crediting, a blessing of credited. It's a work of God's grace when you receive it. Righteousness is credited to our account. It's judicial. In other words, in terms of the justice of God, it satisfies all the legal requirements. It's the crediting of something to someone that does not deserve it. It's not due. We're still unrighteous, so it's not impartation. In other words, we are not made righteous, not making righteous, but declaring righteous. That's the doctrine of imputation. Now we'll pick up in verse 6. So we have the experience of Abraham, verses 1 through 5, and we looked at 4 and 5 last week. Now he's going to confirm it with David. So he takes us back to the scriptures again, almost like what Deuteronomy 17 tells us, that you have to have at least two witnesses. So we have a witness of Abraham, and now we have a second witness, a witness of David. And it's in terms of confirmatory. In other words, there's another witness as well. But it's within the the passage dealing with Abraham. Abraham is the prime example. And in verse 6, we have a summary of Paul. And in that, first thing I need to comment here is on the grammar. I break it, even though the New American Standard, and there's another version, I can't remember, there's another version that joins it with verse 6 with verse 5, and you can see the comma there. But it's not totally clear in the Greek. It could go that way. You could have a continuation and or you could have a complete independent clause and a, a separate individual sentence there. In the Greek text, grammatically, it'll work either way. I think it's better to put a break there, and I believe the King James Version does it that way, and a couple of other versions as well. Your new King James puts a comma. Okay, so it's New American Standard and New King James. King James puts a period there. Jerusalem Bible, and I think NIV, I think, puts a period there. So I'm going to put a period there, and the introductory word, just as, the Greek word there, oftentimes does introduce a new idea or a new sentence. So you can take it either way grammatically, and I think it's better to take it as a complete sentence. So just as David, and we'll go on from there, just as David also speaks, so now David speaks, And he's going to refer to the writings of David. Does anyone know which writings are in view there in 7 and 8? Look at the margins of your Bibles there. Psalm. Okay, what psalm? Psalm 32. Does anyone know the context of Psalm 32? Yes. This is, there's two psalms that go together. Psalm 32 and the other one, 51. 51, David is mourning his sin, and he's under conviction and a heavy burden. Psalm 32, he has experienced the release of that burden or the forgiveness of sin. And now he's quoting out out of that. And Paul here, David also speaks of the blessing, and he's tying it to what David says. In fact, he's going to use the word blessing four times in this context. David also speaks of the blessing on the man whom God credits righteousness. And here's the passage with the four occurrences. Blessing on the man whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And this is David 
quotation mark begins in verse 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. And then skip down to verse 8. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Logizomai in the Greek. And then verse 9. Is this blessing on the circumcised? In other words, he's going to expand and use that psalm to reinforce what he has already said. So the word blessing, now he moves to blessing. And the idea here, justification is a blessing. It's a gift. It's something outside of us. It comes from God. We cannot generate it. We cannot produce it. It is external. And he's using David to confirm that. So David has a blessing, and the Greek word makarios, to be spiritually made prosperous, or spiritually made wealthy, or in some way be enhanced by something spiritual. And what uh, Paul is doing is using David's statement and broadening it in terms of a broader concept in terms of David, because the context deals with uh, Bathsheba. I'll get back to that chronology there. This is reference to David. So at the end of verse 6, blessing on the man whom God credits, logizomai, righteousness apart from works. Notice the emphasis over and over. Justification or this crediting of righteousness that is preceded by forgiveness of sin, it is apart from from works. Now, the emphasis of Abraham and the Genesis 15.6 is imputation, is righteousness, the crediting of righteousness. The emphasis of David is what? The other aspect of justification. No, that's Abraham, forgiveness of sin. That's what the Psalm's going to deal with. So we have Paul's summary, and then verse 7 Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, forgiveness of sin. Now, biblically, we can show this if we had more time. I'm not going to go into the detail on it. But forgiveness, there are two aspects to it. There's the broad overall forgiveness at the moment of salvation or at the moment of justification. That is what Paul is talking about. But he's using David when you are forgiven. That has long-lasting effects. In fact, it affects your whole life. And what he's dealing with is later in David. In other words, David wasn't justified after he confessed his sin with Bathsheba. He was a believer before that. In other words, he was justified before that. But this forgiveness of sin has effect throughout our Christian life. Now, the second aspect of forgiveness is we can break fellowship, and that's what David did. David broke fellowship with that sin with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband and the cover-up and everything else. And he received the release or the burden of that and the regaining of fellowship. That's 1 John 1, 9. So as believers... We are forgiven once and for all for everything, only once, and that covers all sin, past, present, and future. But when we break fellowship, we confess that sin, 1 John 1, 9, and restore the relationship. It's a family idea here. Make sense? 
David is experiencing the restoration of uh, fellowship with God, and but he also is basing that on that broader idea, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, past tense. David experienced that. And now in our temporal sense, he's also experiencing the benefits of that. So we have Hebrew poetry, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Same idea. But now, in other words, those sins have been dealt with In the Old Testament, they were covered by animal sacrifice, anticipating the ultimate removal. Remember, he passed over sin. Remember chapter 3, sin is covered. That's an Old Testament concept. Lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. So we have David. This is after he's justified. The psalm is not talking about justification Paul is using it in its broadest sense. Psalm 32, he's quoting out of the Septuagint. That's the passage we're looking at. This is after the sin with Bathsheba, where he's David is experiencing the benefits of that once and for all past tense forgiveness. And then verse 8, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. There's the connection. There is the idea of imputation of sin again. Logizomai, in the Greek text of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, Logizomai. Paul picks it up. That's the connection here. So we have imputation of righteousness and a non-imputation of sin. In other words, God regards the sin as removed. That's forgiveness. And then he imputes in its place right standing or righteousness. See how the two work together there? So blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. There's the accounting term logizomai. And there's a connection. And that's a blessing. And that's a one-time thing. And he's using David confirming this idea of justification. So we have that tie-in of logizomai in that passage. So the conclusion we can come to, Terry? Just, when you talked about the Old Testament sacrifices, they made them, the Israelites made them as, because they broke fellowship. Yes. And that's their way of how we personally go to God when we break fellowship as sin to have a right relationship with sacrifices. Yes. But they were still justified at some point by believing that there is a Messiah. Yes. There's yes. a Redeemer. Yes. Nationally, uh, the Exodus is their national salvation experience as a picture of individual, but individual Jews had to also trust in the promises and the revelation that God gave to them. And individually, I think David is an example of one that was justified. Abraham is an example of one that was justified. And there's other examples that are, it's not as clear in other passages. But we can conclude that some of the kings, obviously, uh, they walked with the Lord or they obeyed the law. Uh, passages like that. So, conclusion. Justification includes forgiveness of sin. That's emphasized in verses 7 and 8 with the David example. And we had already looked at imputation of righteousness. That's in verse 3 where Abraham referring to the Genesis uh, 15, 6 passage, and now 
also in verse 6, the crediting of righteousness in that passage as well. That's justification. Two aspects, a removal of a negative, forgiveness of sin, and the imputing or the crediting to our account of righteousness. That's justification. Two things. Does not include the removal of the sin nature yet. That comes later when we go to be with the Lord. But right now, before God, we are totally forgiven of all sin, past, present, future. That's relieving. And we stand with God looking at us with the same righteousness of Christ right now. Even though we have these crummy, smelly, decaying, old natures still plaguing us. When we get to chapter 6, we're going to see some keys in how to deal with that flesh. Paul gives a vivid description of it at the end of chapter 7. It's like carrying a dead body on your shoulders, on your back, that is weighing you down. That's the imagery that he's using. Take a look at that on your own. You don't have time to look at it. Okay? Would it be fabulous if you could have spiritual eyes to see yourself as God sees Oh, it Each would, one of us could see right now what be, it is, how we look to the Lord, oh, you, to the spiritual order. You couldn't, you you couldn't pick yourself off, off the floor. You know, it's some, an amazing thing to really think. Yeah. You could really see what it is you look like and how it is that you're covered. Ooh, I don't want to see that. I don't think it'd be cool. <laughs> it'd be awesome, I know. <laughs> Blow my mind. Yeah, uh, do more than that, yeah. Secondly, the Old Testament justification, this is before the law. Abraham is before the law. Old Testament justification before the law is by grace through faith apart from works. Same thing he was teaching in chapter 3. Now he's illustrating it. So that brings us to 4, 9 through 10. The issue of circumcision, and we may not get through all of that, but there's uh, uh, there's not a lot I want to cover there. Verse 9, is this blessing then on the circumcised? In other words, when he uses that word, he's referring to the Jewish people. Is this blessing then on Jewish people, you could say, or on uh, the non-Jewish people also? So that's the question. He's going to argue from... Abraham, he's going back to Abraham in verse 9. Abraham represents both. He comes out of the Gentiles. He is a Gentile, but he's circumcised. This is later. We need to keep the chronology in order. Is it on the non-Jewish as well? Jewish view of circumcision, they believe that that was the justifying act. In other words, justification is by works. The initial work is circumcision. They had a very high view, and this is out of some of the writings, Book of Jubilees. Speaking of uncircumcision, they said it belongs not to the covenant which the Lord made with Abraham. We're going to see that in chapter 17. For he belongs to the children of destruction. In other words, the uncircumcised belong to the children of destruction. Nor is there moreover any sign on him that he is the Lord's, the uncircumcised. But he is destined to be destroyed and slain from the earth and rooted out of the earth. That was the view of the Gentile, the unbeliever. But the alternative of that is that if you were circumcised, then there was no way that you could even lose your salvation. In other words, they were 
putting the whole weight on a physical outward act, not unlike people do today with baptism. In fact, there's a clear analogy between the two. I could give you a lot of quotes that kind of go along with this idea, but that gives you an idea of the high view they had of circumcision. So he's going to answer, for we say, and he's going to reiterate here, faith was credited, there it is again, logizomai, to Abraham as righteous. And when did that happen? Circumcision didn't come until the second announcement or the second giving of the covenant. Verse 10, how then was it credited while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? You answer the question. Uncircumcised, he was justified. He was justified even before Genesis 15. Genesis 15, there's no circumcision. Not while circumcised, he's going to answer it there, but while uncircumcised, Abraham was justified. It has nothing to do with it. All right? So Abraham's chronology, we have the covenant. He was about 85, 15, 1 through 6. We looked at that. Ishmael is born a year later, and we have a clear date for that in chapter 16, verse 16. We have the covenant renewed, and Abraham is uh, 99, so a few years elapsed from that time. That's chapter 17, 1 through 8, the reiterating of the covenant to Abraham. And it's in chapter 17, we have the command for circumcision. Isaac is born, just to kind of give you more of the chronology there, when Abraham is 100. So all these things, if you keep the chronology in order, you can follow what Paul is doing here. So we have the explanation in verses 11 through 12. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of righteousness. He's going to explain the place of circumcision. It's after Abraham is justified long before, and I think in Ur of the Chaldees, long before chapter 17 in the book of Genesis. 25 years later, at least, maybe a lot more than that, in fact. So it's a sign and a seal, two things here. What does the sign do? What were the signs of Jesus? What, were, what did they do? Yeah, they proved the deity of Christ. They demonstrated or they pointed to Christ as God himself. That's what a sign does. Circumcision is a sign pointing to something other than itself. Like baptism, circumcision was an indicator of what should have taken place inwardly. It had national significance as well. In other words, it tied people to the nation of Israel. But in terms of justification, it was the outward sign that uh, indicated or should have indicated an inward reality. It was a sign. It was also a seal. And what does a seal do? It's different from a sign. Bruce has dealt with seals all of his life. He's a structural engineer, and after a set of drawings are completed, and he's you know he's gone through all the process of checking them and everything else, at the last, he puts his seal on it. And what he is saying with that seal, this document, to the best of my knowledge, is accurate and represents reality. And that seal, what does it do? It validates 
the authenticity and it validates the uh, accuracy and the validity of that set of drawings. And he writes his name down there, puts his neck out on the line, sends it to the lawyers. Yeah, okay. So it's a sign of something beyond itself, an inward reality, and it's a validation. In other words, okay, I realize that this is a reality. It is true. It is valid. It is a seal of the faith which he had while uncircumcised. It's an act of obedience. just like baptism. So that it has a purpose, and we won't have time to develop that purpose. I'll come back and we'll look at a twofold purpose, but let's summarize it in conclusion. So that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised. Abraham becomes a father of Gentiles in a way. <coughs> he becomes a spiritual father to the Gentiles. He's our spiritual father. He was justified by faith, and we follow the pattern of Abraham. That righteousness might be credited. There it is, logizomai. Righteousness credited to him. And then verse 12, and the father of the circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, He's a twofold father. He's the father of the nation as well. And circumcision is the validation or the seal of it. It's not the reality. It's the, it's the sign that points to something else. But who also follow in the steps of the faith? So we have the fatherhood of the nation of Israel. That's physical. That's literal. That's circumcision. It's a pledge. Circumcision is a pledge of nationality. It's a token, a sign of headship of Israel over the nations. And then thirdly, he's also the father of all who are justified by faith. Very significant passage here. Another conclusion here, uh, not only is the Old Testament justification before law, that's Abraham, is by grace through faith apart from works. Old Testament justification under law, that's David as the example, is by grace through faith apart from ordinances. Apart from ordinances. Old Testament circumcision. And you can use the parallel in the New Testament with baptism. So we have three witnesses of justification. Three witnesses justification by grace through faith. Abraham, witness number one. David, witness number two. New Testament, witness number three. Terry, I'd like for you to close for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for just uh, your forgiveness, Lord. It's just so hard for us to fathom the depth of what all that means. But we just pray, Lord, that we can ask you to work in our lives so that we can live out our faith and that you can work through us, God, and that we can be a light to the non-believers. Thank you for this. In Jesus' name. Amen.